News Now. Analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning and welcome to the first edition of the Woodford Show. We have an exciting lineup for you today. Kamloops Councillor Kathy Sinclair will join us. Social media expert Jesse Miller's on. We'll also talk to the Chief of the Whispering Pines First Nation, Michael Labordier. And we finish strong with a chat with Premier John Horton. And welcome the first ever guest to the Woodford Show. It is Kamloops City Councillor Kathy Sinclair. Kathy, welcome. Thank you, and uh, congratulations on the new show, Shane. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's kind of weird, actually. I hear the words Shane Woodford show. It kind of makes me, I don't know, it's a little strange. But anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, uh, I wanted to get you on because, uh, and I know we've talked about this over the past uh, week or so since uh, the Fawcett's labeled their their, uh, proposal for this sort of 2.0 version of the Downtown Performing Arts Centre. The council, as I understood it, was going into strategic meetings Thursday, Friday last week, and uh, that was going to allow for some kind of uh, further clarification from council side of things. Um, I, I don't know what happened in those meetings, which is why I wanted to get you on and get a sense of, of what progress, if any, was made last week. So uh, where do we sit this morning as far as sort of further clarify, uh, clarifying this picture as far as a Performing Arts Centre? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Funnily enough, we actually took an even, an even bigger step back towards what are the goals of the Performing Arts Centre and why are we talking about it? So um, strategic planning, of course, is uh, really important for any organization, especially for a municipality. What do we want to achieve over the next four years? And I guess sort of the irony is that um, our strategic planning consultant, who is fantastic, her name is Tracy Lawrenson, um, she really got us asking the why. So why do you brand yourself as the tournament capital? And, you know, we, we all know intuitively or maybe not, but, but just from day to day, why the tournament capital brand is so strong for Kamloops. It brings tourists to town, it brings dollars to town, um, provides entertainment for locals. Um, there's a huge community benefit. And uh, we sort of unpacked, not a huge surprise though, that uh, facilities such as a future performing arts center would do those exact same things. So uh, it was really about analyzing why we're, we're interested in different projects and, um, you know, things can change and um, things can happen and, and, you know, changing course is a normal thing, but you want to keep your strategic planning themes broad enough so that if, if a project doesn't go ahead, that you still have a, you know, a strategic goal that you're going to be able to work towards in some form. And so it's a bit of an umbrella. Um, so, you know, nothing really earth shattering in our strategic planning sessions, but, um, Picking up from the last last strategic planning sessions, which I wasn't a part of, we really have um, broad stroke themes. Economic development was a big one for us this year. Um, environment and climate change, also a huge one, particularly in terms of um, emergency preparedness, wild, wildfires and uh, airshed management. Infrastructure and asset management were also a big one. And then livability, which you know, we carry over from the last strategic plan as well, but we really did speak about things like housing, things like arts and culture, and things like safety uh, and affordability, of course, as well. So uh, my sense is that a project such as the Performing Arts Centre would fit nicely in both the livability and the economic development um, areas of our strategic plan. Okay, so it sounds like you guys sort of really took a step back and tried to look at sort of the bigger picture and create sort of a foundation to build this proposal on. Any any clarification now on sort of, you know, what happens next or a timeline, or is this just going to be sort of an evolving process over the next little while? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty anxious to get uh, some word back from staff. It's, you know, um, coming from a nonprofit background and, and working with local government, there's a lot of parallels where your, um, your board or your council strategy and your staff carries out that strategy and that vision. So we did our best uh, last Thursday and Friday to really set that big picture strategy. It's up to staff now to come back with carrying out how are we going to implement that strategy? Um, and I believe one of those things will be looking at a business case and timeline for uh, a new revised performing arts center proposal. Um, you know, and as passionate as I am about the arts and uh, as much as I think a performing arts center would be a fantastic thing for Kamloops, we do need to see a business case. We need to see not only how are we going to raise that $70 million, but what are what is this going to look like? Um, who's going to operate the facility? Is it going to be financially viable over a period of years? I mean, we cannot make any decisions without that detailed information, and um, that is crucial for the next steps, for sure. In your mind, and this is a bit of an, uh, an outside question, and because we have we we there's so many unknowns, but I do know at least one councillor has raised the idea on the location, perhaps putting it on the North Shore as opposed to downtown. From your perspective, is it is it downtown or bust for this thing, or no? I don't think it's downtown or bust. Uh, but I do think that we have the most density in the downtown. Um, you know, I, I like to go go to a restaurant and, you know, have a beverage and go to a show. And I think sort of that um, model fits best for Kamloops downtown right now. Um, and I know there's a lot of other great stuff happening in the North Shore, too. Um, Joshua Nack is working with Kamloops Innovation. That's ARPA. Developments and um, they're going to be putting in sort of a smaller venue for performing arts and and um, teaming up with the arts. So there's lots of room for things to happen on the North Shore as well. Um, I think it's uh, unfortunate when we sort of get into a turf war with different neighborhoods. Um, you know what is going to benefit downtown Kamloops is going to ben- benefit all of Kamloops. What is going to benefit the North Shore is going to benefit all of Kamloops as well. And um, you know, I really encourage folks to take that step back and see how something like Arts Center can be a huge benefit to the whole city. Uh, and since we're talking infrastructure, I imagine it was fairly eye-opening to have that staff report uh, last week, kind of beginning the assessment of infrastructure in the city using uh, City Hall as an example that uh, perhaps that structure has outlived its useful uh, lifespan. Uh, and that's just one of many you guys are in charge of throughout the city. What was your sort of reaction and what do we do on that front? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a huge surprise. It, it's um, pretty clear walking into City Hall that um, if you have mobility issues, you cannot get up to the second floor of that building. I mean, that alone is a, a reason for a need for um, improving the infrastructure. And we've also had some uh, new council has been getting some orientation tours. So we've, we've toured the RCMP detachment. We've toured the Tournament Capital Center and... Um, you know, it's clear buildings don't last forever. They're going to need some uh, maintenance and some renovation. Um, City Hall is a good example where you have, uh, you know, a building built for one purpose and then you put some employees in there and then suddenly your employee numbers go up and um, there's no room to put everybody. So um, I think all of us are quite anxious. We know we've gone down, you know, somewhat working towards asset management, but we're all quite anxious kind of get uh, a report that lists out all of our facilities um, and facilities includes our roads and our sewer pipes and uh, 
you know, I, I've encouraged staff, which they're already doing, to look at our green spaces and our trees because those are um, assets for our community as well, especially when we are looking at climate change. Um, so we're all quite anxious to get moving farther ahead on asset management. And um, we're, you know, we're well underway. It's, it's not a quick, easy fix or a, a you know, something that can happen overnight, but um, staff is definitely working on that. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, last question. I mean, uh, just sort of narrowing it down the focus to City Hall, uh, because I know the mayor's uh, raised with us, you know, perhaps we have conversations with the BCLC and work out something with the rebuild they're doing over there, if that's not in trouble. Uh, but is this a conversation in a new City Hall that needs to start now? Uh, you know, if I look at a timeline, we start talking about it, and it's going to take years even from right now if the process is kick-started to actually get anything built. So is that something that has some urgency to it, in your opinion, or no? Yeah, I mean, it's tough when everything is urgent. Uh, there's a lot of projects on the books right now. And, uh, you know, I think in terms of investing in infrastructure, I don't think City Hall would be the most popular one um, in terms of public and the taxpayers. Um, but it is a crucial part of city operations, clearly, and uh, it needs to be made more accessible. So I'd like to wait for staff to come back with a report on that. and. You know, we may be looking at some more urgent needs um, in terms of our other facilities, but um, you're right, we do need to start talking about that now. Perfect. Kathy, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for sharing some time with me and look forward to having you back on. Thanks a lot, Shane. Take care. That was Councillor Kathy Sinclair. After the break, we've certainly had some recent experience here with being the victim of online mob behavior. We'll dive into that topic next with a social media expert on The Woodford Show on Radio NL. Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome to an overcast day here in Kamloops. For the better part of a decade, my next guest has been watching and analyzing social media behavior, becoming one of the go-to experts in all things online from mediated, uh, MediatedReality.com. You can find him on Twitter, at MediatedReality. It's a pleasure to welcome Jesse Miller to the show. Jesse, welcome. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on the new show. Yeah, thanks, man. appreciate that. Hey, I don't know if you caught it in the news because it did create a fair bit of it. And the reason I wanted to have you on, uh, because I know you watch all things social media, but we had a bit of a situation here at NL last week where one of our guys put out a fairly innocuous tweet calling out some of the behavior of some of those Trudeau protesters. That was posted in a Facebook group, which kind of gathered hundreds and hundreds of comments, became this sort of devolving conversation, which led to uh, outing the name of his wife, um, violent threats, death threats, threats, threats of rape against his wife, uh, we got bombarded with hate mail, still getting a little something today. And it just, it made me think, uh, you know, something I had to dive into and deal with, not only from a news perspective, but also, you know, as, as, as his immediate supervisor. Uh, and I just, I began to have this hypothesis that, you know, there's a psychology at play here. There's a certain sort of mob mentality that's perpetuating itself online. And I just kind of wanted to bring you on and to talk a little bit about that. So do you see a, do you see a social media changing how we converse with each other? And is there a, is there a positive and obviously a negative to that? I think there's I think there's a variety of conversations we could have, and I don't think we're allocating enough time. But uh, since Facebook went from static to mobile, um, we have seen a huge growth in how people choose to use social media as a platform to either voice an opinion, target individuals, or at the end of the day, uh, align themselves with ideologies that um, might not be mainstream. 
but uh, they do find an audience. And the reality within it, and we can, we can never condone threats to violence via social media or any other platform, but when it comes down to how easy it is to put puzzle pieces together to target an individual, um, that's, our, that's our current lot in life. And I, 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 in my work, I advocate uh, not only for parents of children, but for individuals and how they use these tools to voice opinions and, and how to take something that's bothering them and understand not only the permanency of what they put online, but how it can impact others. Is there a responsibility from groups like, you know, your Twitters, your Facebooks, your Instagrams to more uh, sort of more closely monitor some of these conversations and enact some kind of punishment and or some kind of policing of these behaviors? Because I, I still get the feeling that we're having conversations online that you wouldn't have if you were standing around in a room with, you know, nine or ten different people. I think it goes to the accountability piece. It comes down to the rooms and the spaces. And I think even before the internet existed, we had spaces where people decided to get together, sometimes underneath the darkness of night, and discuss something that might not be in popular favor. The internet now makes it easier for people to come together. I think we have to we have to actually hold more accountability to our actual audiences online. And so when we see people create groups on Facebook and, and they start to see dialogues that go outside of their mandate, away from their main platform principles, um, they have to either administrate or administrate those platforms and, and decide who they remove from the groups. Um, or at the end of the day, if you do still start to feel violated based on personal information being used against you, or when it comes down to it, um, threats to safety, you have to look for those external offline tools, whether it is reporting it to the platform itself or going to appropriate authorities to kind of voice a concern. My concern there is that I've done enough work with law enforcement where um, sometimes we want our police officers to be multifaceted in how to keep people safe safe, but how are you supposed to um, uh, shut down a person who's uh, sending messages from countries away? Uh, that becomes a bigger concern for safety, as people sometimes feel that too, too close is the fear of going online and uh, checking to see what's in their inbox. Yeah, and the other part of that, I mean, I was shocked in this particular instance of, because I had to go through all these comments on this Facebook post to kind of get a sense of what was going on. There were more than a fair share who, in fairness, were putting their name to their comments. But on the other side of that, there was a segment, and, and this has been a problem with uh, specifically Twitter, uh, is sort of the anonymity of some of them. You get an egg telling you all this crazy stuff. Should there be anonymity online? Should we? There should be some mechanism to say, okay, you know, they, with this person is this person, and this is what they're saying? Well, I mean, my, a lot of my work isn't with child education, so I do a lot of work in cyberbullying education uh, in schools. And I've been a huge advocate for parents saying, if, you're, if your child coming up to you and said, I want to be on the internet, I want to have a social media account, and you're concerned about, you know, stranger danger or accreditation, would you put your credit card down next to your child's Instagram account or, or, or social media account of any choice? And majority of parents say, no, I, I'm fearful that my personal information will get out there, there'll be lots of charges. But if we had to verify every single kid who goes online and they would not be able to go online and bully another child and parents would be held accountable for their child's actions online, we would see a huge decrease in the incidents that our schools see. Imagine this now applies to an adult. You have to verify yourself online the same way. Would you go online and risk your job? Would you risk the relationships? The thing is, for some people, when it comes down to political ideologies or their voice, um, they misconstrue the right to free speech with the idea of being able to go online and say anything without fear of consequence. Um, so anybody online who f believes they can say something without either the RCMP, their municipal police, CBSA, or CSIS notice noticing it, um, it's not a police state. We are saying things in public places. The public place is just behind our keyboard. 
what's your advice? I mean, in the instance you mentioned, you work a lot with with school school age children, but I think when it comes to cyberbullying, uh, a lot of the rules apply regardless of your age. And, and certainly, my afternoon guy was was the victim of very much cyberbullying. What's your advice to people, young kids or otherwise, who are the victims in this situation? How do they handle that? What's, what do you tell them? Well, I think when, we're, when we're, we as adults are approaching this dialogue, I mean, the biggest vulnerability that our democracy faces today is this active dissemination of misinformation and then using information to target individuals, especially to silence people who might have a contrary opinion. Um, if you're online and you're starting to realize that people are using that information in a, in a harmful way, uh, you have to look for your resources. And so if it is something to do with your employment, you have to talk to your employer and see what the, the, the tools are to minimize that impact. If it's fear of safety, you have to be able to talk to your uh, municipal police. And again, it doesn't matter what side of the coin you're on. If you feel that your that your sa- your right to safety is being violated, you have to be able to reach out to people who are going to look out for your your, your best uh, best uh, safety. Um, but the reality here within this is that uh, minimizing how much information you put online, uh, not sharing as actively as we do. Uh, lots of people put pictures of their children, where they live, where they go to work, where they go to school, where they live. Um, the reality is that that doesn't bother us until something negative happens. And that's where we sometimes get the sobering second thought of maybe I shouldn't have posted that information five years ago because now somebody else has been able to put these pieces together and make me feel unsafe. Is those online behavior sort of educational building blocks, should those be included? And I assume they are to some degree. Should those be included uh, in the school system so that we're educating kids about what's going on out there? Well, we actually are seeing a huge shift. We've, we've migrated away here in our BC schools, away from the idea of only educating kids about safety online as it applies to predators. Um, what we are now doing uh, through not only the ministry down, but school districts independently, and to be fair, even some schools have taken a different approach than some of uh, their district mandate. Um, they're saying if our kids are going to live and breathe in a digital world where they are participating in the school bricks-and-mortar buildings, but also expected to participate online, how do we help them put forward a best foot and understand that the things they do online today can be held to consequence as they migrate through secondary and post-secondary. But the other part also being just if you are going to participate online discords, what does it mean to be an individual online who has a voice and it's an educated and nuanced voice and you are using the tools available to you based on having access to the internet to share good information that the world can understand and and learn from. And the more we do that, the more we support kids that way, we are going to see another generation come forward that are actually a little bit more savvy than currently what we're seeing online from uh, from, uh, our, our, you know, 15 years of being on Twitter. Yeah, and I think some of the problem comes from older people who just don't have any sort of foundational sense before they charge off and, and do some things, although, I mean, I, I suppose could be said across age groups. Uh, Jesse, uh, out of time, but always a pleasure. Thanks so much for, for your insight, and love to have you back on in the future to talk a little more. Thank you for having me. There we go, Mediated Reality. That's Jesse Miller. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, get caught up to the news here on the Woodford Show on Radio NL, and on the other side, uh, Whispering Pines First Nations Chief Mike Laborde joins us as uh, Aboriginal groups and protests and pipelines, all that stuff whirling in the headlines. We're going to look for a little context here on Radio NL right after this. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. Digging deeper into the day's top stories. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back to the Woodford Show. A pleasure to be joined in studio this morning by Chief of the Whispering Pines First Nation, Mike Laborde. Mike, how are you? Good, Shane. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to see you. You're looking fit and trim and all that. I just got out of the gym, so I have that after-workout glow going on. (laughs) 
Well, and I also do comedy on the side. So. There we go. Nice. Uh, hey, I wanted to have you in. I know that uh, uh, you're big in natural resources. You're kind of a progressive guy. And I wanted somebody uh, from your perspective within First Nations to kind of discuss what's going on with the wet sweat and thing, which is a big kind of headline grabber over the last week. And one of the things that caught me by surprise, as you and I were chatting about off the air, was this thing about hereditary chiefs versus band councils. It was something I was previously sort of unaware of. And I thought to myself, okay, well, you know, I need to have some further context about that. Um, in, what, what's going on exactly there? It's from, a, from a First Nations perspective, what's, what's the deal with that? Well, from, from my perspective, from what I, what I can observe, um, the elected chiefs um, and most of the hereditary chiefs uh, approved the pipeline and, because it's been going on for a long time. Right. So uh, the, the chiefs I spoke to, uh, Chief Smith and, and um, Karen Ogden and all those, they, they were comfortable with um, the environmental um, concerns that they, they brought up and, and how it was addressed by coastal gas. Um, the hereditary system is largely coastal. Um, I'll give you an example. My, if, if most hereditary chiefs have an area of responsibility, a particular watershed. So right. one family group would look after a watershed and, and all the goings-on that's in it. They couldn't prohibit people from using it, but they, they just made sure that it was used responsibly. Sure. And so that's largely what their what their role was. Mm. And so, you know, in northern British Columbia, there's a lot of watersheds. And so you have a, a, a lot of uh, hereditary chiefs. And so that's from what I understand. Okay. Now, my, my ancestry, like if you go along my maternal line, my mother's line, my aunts did this um, so that they could find my name. Um, they traced our lineage back to Comox, mm. Chief Comox, when Captain uh, Vancouver sailed into. Wow. Uh, um, he's the he's the one who met him. Right. And so you could argue that one day I'm going to be the hereditary <laughs> chief of Comox, which is not true. I, I don't have any desire to be that. Yeah. And and it's it's um you know it's a responsibility of the people that live there. Right. And so those are the folks that um should have to be addressed along with the elected officials. Okay. And certainly I think it, it, it's incumbent on the elected chief and councils to have the satisfaction of the hereditary chiefs to make sure that all their concerns are addressed and assuaged um when you're doing a, a pipeline, any kind of pipeline. Uh, this has raised the issue of how do we get to, because we have uh, the Premier John Horgan who came in with a lot of promises on the First Nations front. He's going to uh, abide by UNDRIP. We have uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau who's certainly made uh, some significant promises mm -hmm. to First Nations peoples coming in. Uh, obviously, some frustrations on that front from some, judging by the town hall he held here last week. But uh, in your mind, how do we get to free prior informed consent when dealing with First Nations people? Um, the same way you do it with Canada. Yeah. Right? Through... Uh a system of licensing, permitting, and all of that stuff needs jurisdiction. And so what we need as First Nations, is, and it's what I've been advocating for with uh, working with uh, economists and tax guys and all that, is, is you know, starting small, starting incrementally to have uh, a land title system. So if you look at what the Chilcotin have done, you know, they won this significant case and all this land, yet they've yet to describe how they own it. Mm. It's very simple in, in, in Canadian law, mm. how Canada describes they own Crown land and how uh, TNRD describes the area they own, how right. Kamloops describes the area that it has responsibility and jurisdiction over what we need is that same description for the first nations to be 
in partnership with Canada. So when you're talking Crown land, you're talking Crown and Aboriginal land. And so when Trans Mountain or when Coastal Gas or CN or CP, somebody want to do something through your territories and your land that you have to be consulted, free prior and informed consent. Now that's going to take changes to the Indian Act, and that's what I've been... Uh, a proponent of for the last decade or so. How badly do we need to overhaul that act? Well, we're 150 years behind, and so very badly. It, it, it's it, it's. I find it amazing when I go to Ottawa and I said, "This is how we change to get the First Nations to catch up with the rest of Canada." Yeah. And there's a lot of hand wringing, right? Oh my God, <laughs> we should do this. We should do that. Uh, we have to study this. And we've had the Royal Proclamation. We've had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We've had lots and lots of studies. We've had lots of recommendations. What we need is uh, progressive and pragmatic uh, people in the House of Commons to make those changes so that we can catch up to Canada. Because it, it, it's it's not getting better. I mean, the Indian Act is, is rooted in, in, what, 1876? Right, yeah. It's horrible. Yeah, we're perpetuating us, like, yeah. just this gray area of... of Disorganized chaos, almost. Yes. Um, uh, on on this thing, I wanted to read you this this uh, this thing from Facebook. This is North Coast NDP MLA Jennifer Rice on Facebook. Uh, she says, and I quote: "It's important to know that Indigenous people have Indigenous laws that go back thousands of years. The elected band council system is a colonial construct with the historic intention of annihilating Canada's first peoples." Now, Jennifer Rice, to my knowledge, is not. And First Nations person, I could stand to be wrong, I suppose, but uh, I don't think she is. Uh, what do you? What's your reaction to hearing that? Is she onto something? Is she off base? Or? Well, it, she's kind of right, but um, a lot wrong. Are you trying to find a polite way to say? Yeah, it? yeah. It, it's a, it's um, you know, she's right that the, the the Indian Act needs overhauling. Sure, right. But the importance of the Indian Act is it's recognition that. You know, we're partners with Canada. And so what we need to do is overhaul that. What uh, the electoral system was trying to do was democratize Indian reserves, whereas before it was just, you know, settled outside of the fist fight. Um, that's that's not... <laughs> That's not good anymore, right? right. Uh, we're 150 years later. We need um, democratic solutions uh, for leadership in communities. We have it in you know the cities, the TNRDs, the province, and federally, all that kind of stuff. And so it's it's okay. It should work for uh, First Nations as well. And so what well, we just need to we need to overhaul it to what. Um, the, what suits the First Nations, like what suits us here in the Shuswap Nation, may not suit the Wet'suwet'en or the Chilcotin or what have you. And so there is some truth to what she's saying, but there's a there's a lot of good that can come out of um, uh, you know elections. Mm. Um, and a lot of bad if you look at Donald Trump. And what he's done. <laughs> oh, the phone lines are lighting up. <laughs> so, so there, you know, democracies, you know, the, it can be messy the, sometimes. The funny yeah. quote is, you know, democracy sucks, but it's better than the alternative. Yeah, no, right. exactly. Uh, the other thing, and sort of on a similar vein, and I know we've chatted about with this with you uh, over the last couple of months, but you're working along with some other First Nations groups on sort of a, a proposal to buy all or part of the Trans Mountain pipeline. Last I chatted, I believe you just back from a trip 
down to the states talking to some financial people to hammer together some of the dollars so where are we at in that process today uh we we're moving right along like we met with uh the minister of finance in the summer and he was saying well you guys should slow down i said no no, no this is a race and so since uh then we've met with um you know uh, industry, uh, the shippers. Mm. We've met with uh, refineries. We've met with um, the banks. Uh, you know, the big six banks in Canada, and you know, finding who who can support us in going forward in trying to purchase fifty one percent. Okay. And so that's come a long way. Um, there's nothing solid in paper because I need to inform the folks along the pipeline of how. And how this deal will look. Okay. And so um, that's what I do. Besides being band chief, I bomb up and down the um, the right away, getting people's opinions, saying this is how it should look. This is why it's it's a good deal. Or they seem receptive you know, or, or uh, yeah. We've always wanted equity. Yeah. I mean, it, it's when we started negotiating with, with Kinder Morgan when they owned this pipeline back in what two thousand seven. We started talking to them. Equity was always a part of the discussion. It just, they said, well, there's no equity in the first pipe. We'll talk about it later. And so we call it grudgingly agreed to that. But now that Canada owns it, well, that's back on the table. And the First Nations really, really, really want um, equity or taxation powers because that comes with environmental oversight. Right, we're tired of the promises mm. of environmental oversight and not getting yeah. it. Um, you know, you look at Site C. I don't know how that environmental oversight is going up there, but we want it here because we have the fish habitat and and the moose habitat and the deer habitat, all that kind of stuff that we want to have um, looked after by us, for us, and so that's the keen interest in equities. One, you get revenue. Mm. And two, you get the environmental oversight and some decision-making powers in the boardroom. Last question uh, on this topic. Uh, we talked to the Prime Minister last week, and his rough sort of you know answer was, yeah, great, love to hear what you guys have to say, but we do have this court process we're trying to deal with to get Trans Mountain rolling, and it's on the other side of the court process. So he kind of said, okay, we can we can really have a finite you know, bargaining or negotiations, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Timeline-wise, does that suit you or, or no? Well, it, it, what suits us is there's an election in November, and so what, we're going to put a preemptive bid in front of him um, so that uh, it's a yes or no before the election. And I think it'll be a, a good enough um, proposal that he'll say yes because it, it's it's just it makes sense for all of us, right? You know, we want to have truth and reconciliation we want to have a partnership with canada and this can be the start of that this can be a model that you can embrace and use in in the, you know um the any pipeline or a mine or whatever infrastructure project that canada has in mind yeah and so that's that's what we're trying to achieve okay when do you uh, ideally when you want to bid in front of the prime minister or the government probably late spring Late spring, okay, and yeah. timeline for them to get April, back to you. April, Mayish. Um, so we have a November election, so late spring. So that would give them the summer to think it over and hopefully get back oh, to you no. in a couple months. It took him like a weekend to decide <laughs> whether or not to buy this pipeline. He's going to get a weekend to say yes or no, right? Yeah. What happens if he says no, Mike? Well, I don't know if it'll get built. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. It's that simple. Yeah. 
I don't it, see why he wouldn't. I mean, it's I, I know, right? We, we, we all want the same things. We yeah. all want the oil to flow to, to tidewater, and we all want a safe environment. Yeah. What's the problem? And this would take a load off of taxpayers' Exa- backs. Exactly. I want to buy this pipeline from you, Shane, so you should say yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Do you feel First Nations get, like, you were talking a little bit about this before we went to air, but, you know, if we sat down and did a business deal as, you know, government to municipality, as opposed to government to First Nations people, is it the same process to get a fair shake, or... Is it much harder from your from your perspective? It was like the city of Kamloops versus Whispering Pines First Nation. For some reasons, there's a lot of hand wringing, and it seems more difficult. And I and and I'm uh, I don't know why. I used to be uh, do commercial loans before I became politician, and and it was always always harder to do business over here in town than it was uh, on the reserve with the the First Nations banks. Interesting, Mike. Always a pleasure, man. Good to see you. Thanks for coming in. No problem. Look forward to having you back on. Anytime. And uh, I'll meet you in the gym never. (laughs) 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 Uh, I should get back to the gym. I'm joking. I will take a quick break here on Radio NL on the Woodford Show. On the other side, Premier John Horgan joins us. Local News Now. Radio NL. 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Portfolio Interiors presents the Radio NL Blazers Junior Broadcaster. Parents, guardians, grandparents, if you have a sports enthusiast between 8 and 12 years of age in your family, enter their name to win this once-in-a-lifetime experience. The Radio NL Blazers Junior Broadcaster will co-host the first period intermission with the voice of the Blazers, John Keane. They'll receive a commemorative certificate, four game tickets, a behind-the-scenes tour in the press box, and a photo to remember it by. The Portfolio Interiors Radio NL Blazers Junior Broadcaster. Enter online at RadioNL.com. Need some glass? Think family first. Family Glass are your glazing experts. From custom glass cutting for mirrors, tables, and all your flat glass needs, they're also your commercial glazing glass experts. Whether you're looking for custom commercial flat glass for security purposes or fleet vehicle glass repairs or replacements, if you need glass, think family first. Residential or commercial. Locally owned and family operated. Visit Family Glass today. 1285 McGill Road. Or go online at familyglass.ca. Cue the sound of a hostess showing you to your table. Right this way. Bring up the sound of your favorite wine being poured. And your waitress wishing you... Bon appetit. This is where a great night out happens. Atlas Steak and Fish. More than just steak. Try a seafood mixed grill for two featuring lobster, crab, calamari, and jumbo prawns. Or enjoy tuna provençal, salmon steak, or West Coast boulebase for moments that are out of this world. Come into Atlas Steak and Fish inside Cascades Casino. Full-service pet care. That's what Oriole Road Animal Hospital is all about. Whether it's medical, dental, surgical, or nutritional care. From canines to cats or other small pets. Healthy and happy pet care. That's what Oriole Road Animal Hospital is all about. Open Monday to Friday, 8 till 5. Saturday, 9 till 1. Keeping your pet on the path to wellness. Visit Oriole Road Animal Hospital today. 2020 Falcon Road in Valley View. Or find out more about them online at orioleroadanimalhospital.ca. 11 minutes before 10 o'clock, back to the Shane Woodford Show in just a moment. 10th annual Heap the Honda book drive is on now. Uh, Heap the Honda 
Children's Book Drive is on until the 26th. If you have any books to donate, you're invited to drop them off at locations, including uh, Kamloops Honda, Kamloops and North Kamloops uh, Libraries, Henry Groove Educational Center Library, Kamloops This Week, and Kamloops Blazers Game Day on the 25th. Any bright red bookshelf also included in that, in that list. Books will be given to the Bright Red Bookshelf Project and ABC Family Literacy Day at the Henry Group Center. If it's on in South Central BC, it's on Radio NL. NL News is brought to you by the Great Canadian Oil Change. The Great what are the ways a great Canadian can be better? By offering you more than you expected. Hi, Jeremy here from the Great Canadian Oil Change. Not only do we give you the best value in warranty approved lube services, we also do tire changeovers and air filters, spark plug replacements, AC services, and a whole lot more. Visit the Great Canadian Oil Change today, Lansdowne Village and Summit Drive. The Great Canadian Oil Change, it's our duty to your car. Advocate for Canadians, an unshakable desire for justice, and a deep love for his country. We'll be talking to you instead of at you. Roy Green is live on Radio NL, a three-time CAB National Gold Ribbon winner. Find out what you think is appropriate. The Wonder Roy Show has been cited by Canada's parliamentary newspaper as required listening for federal politicians. How do you put those two together? You should listen to The Roy Green Show, weekend afternoons, noon to two, on Radio NL. 610 a.m. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 a.m. and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Woodford Show on Radio NL. Real pleasure to welcome to the program the Premier of this province, John Horgan. Mr. Premier, welcome. Good morning, Shane. How are you? Happy New Year. I'm doing well. Happy New Year to you, too, and your family. Yeah, thanks. How did the whole thing go with uh, this new arrival in your son's life over the holidays, by the way? Oh, uh, for listeners, uh, my son, I have two boys, uh, one, uh, well, they're men, uh, one lives in London, England, and he came home for Christmas and brought a woman with him. She's delightful, Daisy, yeah. name, and uh, that was my grandmother's name, so I think there's some uh, some synergies there, but we had a good visit <laughs> holiday and had some good, solid family time. All right, uh, let's get to the matters at hand. Uh, the sweat sweating thing dominated headlines last week and, uh, to me, underscored some of the complexities of, of reaching a deal, getting to free prior uh, informed consent. In, in your mind, and I know you did a, a press conference on it last week, but there's been some twists and turns since. How, how do we get these projects built? How do we get to free prior informed consent, John? Well, by hard work, and that's exactly what LNG Canada has done over the past number of years. It's not something you can do over a weekend. It's not something that can happen uh, in a casual way. There has to be a concerted effort by investors to uh, look at the landscape they find themselves in, as you would do in any investment. Uh, I think that sometimes we overcomplicate these issues uh, and try and hope to make them simple. Well, they are complicated and they require hard work, and, and we've seen uh, in projects, uh, whether it be a mine, uh, a gas field, a cut block, uh, for decades in British Columbia, there has always been challenges on the land base. What we've been trying to do, working with Indigenous communities, is find a way forward. And I believe we're well on our way. Of course, uh, the images from last week uh, were startling for Canadians and British Columbians, but... Um, Again, I think that they reflect the reality that we're operating in, and 
and we need to uh, roll up our sleeves, uh, be respectful, and, and, and listen to what people have to say. Uh, I've heard, uh, you know, this is a complicated issue. You and I have talked about this, Shane, uh, for, for many years when, when I was in opposition and now in government, and, and there is no quick solution or it would have happened before now. Uh, to what extent are you handcuffed by sort of the archaicness of the Federal Indian Act in achieving things provincially? Well, it, it, you, you really you've hit the, the nail on the head. We, uh, we introduced, we, uh, the, the Crown, in, in the form of the federal government, introduced the Indian Act a hundred and some years ago and assumed that that was going to uh, stand the test of time. Well, clearly it hasn't. Court ruling after court ruling has determined that uh, the system that's been imposed on Indigenous communities is not theirs. And uh, there is a new, and, and I, I had to correct some language about whether it's emerging or re-emerging, but the hereditary system that we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks uh, existed long before uh, our ancestors arrived here, Shane, and, and we need to be mindful of that when we're having discussions. But it is, it is new for lawyers and new for governments and, in that sense, and, and that's the challenge that we face. But the courts have been pretty clear on this, and uh, the sooner we sit down and figure it out, the better off everyone's going to be, Indigenous and non-Indigenous. I was in uh, Wet'suwet'en Territory in August. I spent uh, uh, three-quarters of a day listening uh, to hereditary leaders there, uh, not just about uh, natural gas, but about a range of issues, about kids in care, about uh, uh, respect for traditional uh, legal systems and structures. Uh, Highway 16, which is in the center of Wet'suwet'en Territory, of course, as you know, is called the Highway of Tears because of the tragic deaths of Indigenous Indigenous women along that corridor. There's a whole bunch of work we need to do, and you see this in Kamloops, you see this in Kelowna, you see this on the island. Uh, there's a whole bunch of work we need to do in Indigenous communities, and, and it starts by listening, and that's what we've been doing as a government. Some of your ministers seem to have stepped in the muck, or well, at least one minister in one of your MLAs. Uh, start with Jennifer Rice. Uh, she went on Facebook and caused a bit of a stir, and just read the passage here. The elected band council system is a colonial construct with the historic intention of annihilating Canada's First Peoples. I've talked to some people in the First Nations communities uh, who uh, politely say that that's a little bit, uh, a little bit out there. Yeah, well, certainly uh, everyone, whether you're a member of the legislature or a member of the public, has uh, a right to have an opinion on uh, the consequences of decisions made 150 years ago. Uh, and I respect all members of the legislature, Liberal, uh, NDP, and Green, that will have their points of view. Uh, my sense is uh, that the, the BC Liberals want to make a tempest out of a teapot on these comments, and I just have to look south of the border, and the, the words that stream out of the, month, uh, out of the mouth or out of the... Uh, telephone of the President of the United States seem to go with a yawn these days, but if someone speaks their opinion in Canada, all of a sudden it's uh, grounds for a royal commission. I, I think people have strong opinions, Shane. You do, I do, your listeners do, and I'm not going to tell my MLAs at any time to not think, and uh, so I give them full marks for, for trying to grapple with tough issues. All right, uh, before we uh, run out of time here, we do want to talk to you about Nanaimo because it is such a crucial by-election. Uh, if the Liberals come out of this thing, it's 43-43, which is going to provide uh, some interesting wrinkles if that is, in fact, the road we go down. Uh, in your mind here, I mean, we got so many things that are sort of in the mix. Uh, I don't want to over-pundit this, but uh, sitting governments don't often come out successful in by-elections. You've got uh, four uh, candidates from different parties potentially splitting the vote and then some other minor candidates in there as well. Uh, are you Are you concerned or no? 
Well, every time uh, there's an election, uh, you want to do the best you can, and, and uh, your opponents uh, want to bring you down. That's what elections are all about. Uh, I have every confidence that Sheila Malcolmson is a great candidate. She's well-known in the community, a member of Parliament until just recently. She was on the Islands Trust Board, which is uh, basically municipal government for all the many, many people who live on uh, islands and in coastal communities uh, between the island and the lower mainland. Uh, Well-regarded, a solid person. Uh, she's a great candidate. Uh, there are other candidates whose parents were apparently famous in the past, and they have now somehow have the same equivalency as someone who's served the public for decades. But I, I think we're going to do the best we can in Nanaimo, and of course you, you're going to pund it out all you want, Shane. Uh, I think we're going to win, and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that happens. Should the Green Party win, John? Is that a win or a loss? Would you consider it one or the other? Uh, well, uh, I, we've been working very uh, constructively with uh, Andrew Weaver and the Green Caucus. We have our ups and downs, to be sure, uh, but we have... Uh provided stable government for British Columbia for the past 17 months, uh, introducing childcare programs for families who are desperate to uh, reduce costs and to make sure that they can participate in the workforce. The economy is humming along. It's leading the country in job creation, leading the country in economic growth. Uh, our tax rates are still uh, low compared to other jurisdictions in Canada and, and in Washington State, our n nearest competitor internationally. So uh, all, all things being equal, I think the people of Nanaimo who have historically supported New Democrats are going to look at a government that's finally paying attention to the issues that matter to them, and they're going to vote in the affirmative to keep the government going. And, and whether that be uh, a Green MLA or a New Democrat MLA, I think the objectives are the same. Uh, we don't want 16 years of Liberals again. That didn't accomplish much in, in Nanaimo, and that's why there's so much work to do. If the Liberals win this thing, John, will that potentially affect the timing of an election, or is that just too early to call that kind of thing? Oh, it's uh, too early to call, and, and I know that... Uh that uh, the opposition will be working as hard as they can, uh, but I think that they've got a lot of uh, restoration of image to do. I mean, they, they, uh, to have Mr. Wilkinson, for example, talking about ICBC, uh, or, or even Todd Stone back home to your listeners in Kamloops, uh, for him to stand up and say anything about ICBC after the train wreck that they left behind uh, for the incoming government, and more importantly, for, for policyholders, for people who drive in British Columbia, uh, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of a Apologies needed from the BC Liberals before the public, certainly here on Vancouver Island, before the public's going to embrace them again. Premier, thanks so much for coming on my very first show. Really appreciate the time, as always. Uh, good to be on, uh, Shane. I just, if I got 30 seconds, sure. I want to just uh, say a few words about Angelo. Yes, yeah, you, who I, I, uh, I know that uh, it's a very difficult time at the station, and I've been thinking about him a lot since I learned of his passing. Uh, just a giant of a guy. Every time I was in town, he was there with his microphone. He'd ask 50 questions, and you never knew when they were going to come on the air, but you always knew at some point they would. Just a great journalist and a solid guy, and I'm going to miss him, and I know Cam will too. Yeah, we're really struggling with that up here, and we're going to have a, a memorial for uh, for Angelo up here on February 2nd, if you have some time. Yeah, I, I, the reason I wanted to talk today is I won't be able to get there, but uh, my thoughts will be with you on that day, my friend, and all the best to everyone at the station. Good luck with the show. Thank you, Premier. Appreciate it. Take care. Premier John Horgan, and that's it for the inaugural edition of the Woodford Show here on Radio NL. Let's get caught up to the top of the hour. We'll see you again tomorrow. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM.